Well, thank you, Brandon and Sam and Roberta and Jevin. Jevin's back. I didn't see him behind the piano there. We had a wealth of talent within our church. And we're so thankful that Jevin's come back to join us and for the entire team and for those who uh, have given their time and service to leading us in worship. So thankful for that. So thankful for the gifted men and women that we have in our body. So thankful for even the, uh, we just, I just brought it up with, with Brandon preaching at um, uh, Oka Baptist this evening. I'm so thankful that he's able to do that. And, and yes, we definitely want to use the gifts that the Lord has given us. And so just be praying for ways that we can do that, but do that in, in a way that's pleasing to our Lord and brings glory to Him. Uh, so let's, let's continue to pray that way. So good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Just about every week I start my, my time, my sermon, by saying that I'm thankful to be here with the saints. And that's pretty much just about every, every week I do that. Our gathering, I want you to know that our gathering is truly the high point of my week. I find great peace in knowing the Lord and in knowing His people. I find great peace in knowing you personally, and, and I hope that we can continue to grow in our uh, knowledge of one another, in our relationship with one another, and more than that, in our relationship uh, with, with Christ. And I also find great peace as I witness you grow in, under, in your understanding of the Lord and His Word and in your love for Him. Uh, the Lord has blessed me immensely over the past several years I get to study His Word all week, and then I'm privileged to teach it and preach it to you. And even greater than that, I'm honored to, to hear, I get the, uh, the honor to hear your feedback as you learn and grow in God's grace. I'm truly blessed and thankful to share in the abundant harvest the Lord is reaping among the people of Grace Bible Church. Now, 2 Timothy 2.6 says, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, I'm not sure I'm as hardworking as I should be, but I know this. I've been blessed to share in, uh, the, the share in the crops that the Lord is bringing among you, the fruit that the Lord is, is growing among you. Sometimes it's through great heartache, heartache and difficulty, and sometimes it's through times of intense joy, and sometimes it's just through the mundane details of your life, but it's always by and through the truth of His Word. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And so I pray that we'll continue at Grace Bible Church to bring His Word uh, to bear on your life and on my life so that we might see it bear fruit. Well, I pray that your week has been blessed. And You know, it's interesting when we say that. When we say that, I think most of us think of having a peaceful week, right? Free from troubles and heartbreaks. And many times at the end of the service, I read from Numbers 24, 624-27, it says, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make your face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh live, or lift up His face on you and give you peace. And I read that quite often. Generally, we associate then God's blessing with peace, Right? And I think, that's, I think that's the right connection. We should recognize that, that God Himself makes that connection in number six, that this blessing that leads to peace. Yet, here's the problem. Here's the rub. You won't live the Christian life very long before you recognize that it's full of strife and great difficulty. So how can you have peace in the midst of strife and great difficulty? The apostles' lives were characterized by the strife surrounding them. All of them suffered violence. All but John came to untimely ends at the hands of violent men. And Jesus called them to be peacemakers. Yet their stand on the truth created an incredible backlash. And you may recognize, even in your own life, you may recognize this same pattern of difficulty and, and strife surrounding you in your Christian walk. The question is, why? How do we deal with it? Why does it happen? And what does Jesus mean when, it's, when Jesus calls us to be peacemakers? Well, today we're returning to our series entitled, The King and His Glory. 
We're continuing through our study through the Beatitudes. And in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, which I've called the King's Manifesto for His Kingdom, King Jesus reveals nine steps, we've been going through them, to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. Now, we've made it to step seven. Said it's made it to step seven. Step seven being pursue peace or just be a peacemaker. That's Matthew 5, 9. So again, <clears throat> how can we pursue peace or how can we be a peacemaker when there's so much strife around us, so much difficulty that we have to deal with? Can we rightly say that we are peacemakers when the truth seems to create so much strife? Think about that. Can we rightly say that we are peacemakers when the truth, when we preach the truth, when we preach righteousness, and it seems to create so much strife and so much difficulty? Well, I hope to answer these questions and more in the next few, in the next few weeks. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. <clears throat> pray that you would be with us. Pray for your Holy Spirit that you would use your word to illuminate, that you would illuminate your word in the hearts of the listener, and that you would use me as the messenger, that I would decrease and you would increase, that you would use me as a conduit, and that I would be a clean, pure conduit for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Read Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12, as we get started this morning. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peace on earth may be the greatest battle cry of our times. Everyone seems to want peace on earth, and most are willing to fight for it. The willingness to fight to establish peace is one of the great ironies of our time, is it not? One of the great ironies of this world that we live in. In 1945, at the end of World War II, the United Nations was created. According to their charter, they exist to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetimes, now this is back in 1945, has brought untold sorrow to mankind. Further, they exist to encourage nations and peoples to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors. Well, you know, that actually sounds pretty great, does it not? Especially when you consider man's history for war. It has been estimated that since the beginning of recorded history, recorded world history, around 3,100 years according to the source that I use, there have been 286 years without a war. That works out to be around 8%. No doubt that percentage is dropping with every year, and no doubt they haven't been in my home, which has war every day. No, I'm just kidding. Well, there is some truth to that, but we battle, but that's okay. But during that time, they estimate that 8,000 treaties have been broken. It has been said that peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. When Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, of the movie now Oppenheimer, which I don't suggest that you go see, but if you have, uh, you probably know why I wouldn't suggest it. 
But Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, the real guy, who supervised the creation of the atomic bomb, appeared before a congressional committee. They asked him if there was any defense against the atomic bomb. And he says, certainly, certainly. And that is, and Dr. Oppenheimer looked over the hush and expectant crowd and said softly, peace. Peace. No doubt, when he said peace, he meant the absence of hostilities. You know, don't do the things that lead to dropping the bomb in the first place. In Romans 3, 15-17, Paul declares, our feet are swift to shed blood. That destruction and misery are in our paths. And, and we have not known the way of the path of peace. Truly, anywhere humans exist, there won't be peace for long. When the, US, when the USA landed on the moon in 1969, they arrived at a place called the Sea of Tranquility. They found it to be tranquil and peaceful because there were no humans there, right, to disturb, to disturb the peace. It's truly laughable that the motto, the motto of Apollo 11 was, we come in peace for all mankind. Because when, if, if humans lived on the moon... If we actually lived there, there would no longer be peace, would there not? So how can we come in peace when we bring war? As I said, peace on earth may be the greatest battle cry of our times. Everyone wants peace, and most are willing to fight for it. Well, this morning we're returning again to our study in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're again working through this introduction of this greatest sermon ever preached, and we've made it to Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In this sermon this morning, we're going to try to understand Jesus' words in this verse. What does he actually mean? Now, as you may know, we've been slowly stepping through the introduction to Jesus' sermon. We have envisioned the Beatitudes, these, these, uh, these Beatitudes, as a series of steps. If you've been with us, you will recall that the first four steps dealt principally with the inner man. They are what make us true followers of Christ. They change everything about us. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, these steps change how you think it changes your inner thoughts and it changes your inner attitudes, but it also changes how you view life and how you view death. It also changes, uh, in addition to that, it changes how you view yourself and how you view others and how you view the world around you. Now, as you take these steps, you become a new creation in Christ with all new affections. But you must take those first four steps, you must truly take those first four steps for you to understand and take the steps, steps five and beyond. In other, words, in other words, what we've seen is that you must become a Christian before you can truly act like a Christian. You must be before you can do. Now, over the past two weeks, we began to study your new life as a Christian. First, in your new life, as a Christian, you will prefer mercy. That's really step five. We've already taken the first four steps, but step five, you will begin to prefer mercy. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, we saw that true mercy is always concerned about other people's needs, no matter the situation. Now, true mercy is sympathetic and compassionate, even toward people caught up in the ramification of their sin, even and including sin against us. Now, true mercy never seeks to take an advantage of anyone, even when our enemies find themselves under our power, under our control. Mercy always desires what is best for them, including justice. Genuine compassion and justice, we have to understand, always work together. The, the genuinely merciful will, overlook, uh, will not overlook justice. They'll never overlook justice, yet will seek to show mercy even toward those who are receiving their just punishments for their wrongdoing. True mercy was especially exemplified by our Lord Jesus on the cross as He suffered at the hands of His godless enemies. Now, the question is, what is the result of being merciful? Well, you will receive true mercy from the Lord which is the mercy that counts. Now, you may recall from last week that those, who, uh, those people who have come to the end of themselves, those who are, are poor in spirit, are actually the merciful ones. Uh, when, we are, 
when we are merciful, God blesses and shows us mercy. Therefore, forgiveness and mercy and love are on the path to true blessedness, are on the path to true happiness. Now, it never, it never ceases to amaze me. If you look at the most unhappy people in this world, you might find as you look at them, what you're going to find is that they are the most unforgivingly forgiving and merciless people around. Said another way, those who are forgiving and those who show mercy are among the happiest. They're the happiest because they know that they have found the only mercy that truly counts. God's mercy, right? Second, in your new life as a Christian, as a Christian, you will pursue inward purity. That's verse, chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, to understand what it means to be pure in heart, we answered a series of questions. First, we answered, what is the heart? Well, in Scripture, the heart is much more than, than our feelings. It's, it's much more than romance or, or feeling good. Uh, our, the heart in Scripture is the sum or the totality of who we are. In addition to our emotions, it includes our intellect and our will. It is the, the fountainhead uh, out of which everything in our life flows. If our, if our hearts are evil, out of the heart will come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and sexual immoralities and thefts and false witness and slanderers. If our hearts are pure, having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, our hearts, out of our hearts will flow love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and, self, and gentleness and self-control. So the question is, why does Jesus emphasize the heart? Well, he emphasizes the heart because man's troubles always arise from his heart. Our, our problems have nothing to do with where we live. They have nothing to do with our surroundings. Our surroundings uh, can shape us for sure. Our surroundings can make us who we are in one sense, but our impure and sinful heart always leads us down, to, down dark paths. What we have to understand is Adam and Eve sinned in the most fantastic paradise that ever existed. Therefore, the ultimate problem is not our hearts or our surroundings, but it's our hearts. And we can trace every sin, every added sinful attitude, everything can be traced back to the impurity of our hearts. So what does the Lord then mean by being pure in heart? Being pure in heart is, it means to be single-minded in our de devotion to the Lord. No hidden spots, no hidden agendas. We, we recognize that na we have naturally divided hearts like the double-minded man in James 1. When we realize that our hearts, when we realize our heart's sinfulness, we mourn and God begins to cleanse our hearts, making us single-minded and, and He takes away all the spots and all the wrinkles and, and we become pure in heart. And when we do, we no longer have these divided loyalties between God and sin, between the Spirit and the flesh. So how do you become pure in heart? Well, we become pure in heart by faith in, in God and belief in His Word. He shows us the sinfulness, the impurity of our hearts. We, we mourn over it as, as He continues to reveal it to us. The, this process is, is painful. It, it begins at salvation, and, and this process of sanctification continues throughout our lives as, as followers of Christ. And we recognize that it's Christ alone through the work of the Holy Spirit who cleanses us and He, he makes us whiter than snow. And the, but then the question becomes, how do we know? How do we know we're pure in hearts? Well, when we're pure in heart, we become painfully aware and painfully burdened by the remaining impurities which still indwell us. We start this process by mourning over our sins and we continue in the same fashion for the rest of our days. Arthur Pink, I gave this quote last week, but it's so good I want to give it again. One of the most conclusive evidences that we possess a pure heart is to be conscious of and burdened with the impurity which still indwells us, end quote. So the question is, what is the result of having a pure heart? Well, if you look back at your text in Matthew 5, 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Now, last sermon, last time, last Sunday, we saw the example of Stephen being stoned. And he was given a vision of God as he was ready to die, getting ready to die for his faith. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for every Christian is that we follow in the, in the footsteps of, of Stephen and every other saint who is pure in heart and, and has the, been given the gift of seeing the Lord. This brings us up to step seven. Step seven. Pursue peace. Be a peacemaker. That's Matthew 5, 9. Look back at your text in, in Matthew 5, 9. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now the question is, now this is new material, by the way. We, we're starting a new point this, uh, right now. The question is, is Jesus referring to world peace? I mentioned world peace earlier. As I said earlier, the entire world is looking for peace. Every, everyone seems to, look, to want, for, want peace on earth, and as I said, the, the world strives for it. Uh, they're willing even to fight for it. And there's even an NBA basketball player who renamed himself Meta World Peace, but he, he changed it back to, to Ron Artest, I think, in the, uh, is what his name is now, again. And he changed it back. I guess he found out that world peace is a lost cause. I, I don't know. But, but the point is, is that we try to achieve world peace. We try to achieve peace through political means, through uh, the United States. We always talk about it needing a strong military, right, in order to achieve world peace or to maintain peace. We, we maintain, the United States and other countries maintain a, a nuclear arsenal with the threat to destroy the world, and we do so because we want to make sure somebody else doesn't shoot us, so it, it, it maintains the peace. We, we maintain the peace by forming organizations like the United Nations. Uh, we diligently pray for peace among men. There must be more prayer for peace on earth than any other, right? In almost every prayer we pray... In almost every prayer you hear, especially publicly, we pray for peace, whether it's among nations or with, within communities or, or within our families or within our churches. We, we pray for peace all the time. Rodney King ple pleaded for us in, to get along during the L.A. riots. I, some of you may remember this in 1992. You may remember him saying, you know, can't we get along? But he actually said a little bit more than that. He said, I just want to say, you know, can we... Can we all get along? You know, can we all get along? And after pleading with, with the older people, for the older people and the children, he ended his plea by saying, and uh, I mean, please, we, we can. We can get along. We, we all can get along. We just gotta. We gotta. I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. That's pretty profound, isn't it? We're all stuck here for a while. Let's, let's you know, let's try to work it out. Let's try to beat it. You, you know, let's try to work it out. I mean, he's pleading. And what is he pleading for? He's pleading for peace. Peace. Because he was, this was the L.A. riots, and there was fighting in the streets, and, and there, was, there was violence in the streets. And so he wanted, he desperately wanted this peace. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he seems to be speaking what the world wants to hear. But for all the clamor about peace on earth, I think it's pretty clear that we're a pretty rowdy bunch. Again, history makes it pretty obvious that we, we really don't want peace. Or at least we don't want peace unless it's peace on our terms, right? We want peace on our terms. We need to recognize there are two reasons for a world without peace. There's satanic opposition, right? And there's man's disobedience. After the fall of Satan and man, they are embroiled in a battle with God for sovereignty over this world. Both are bent on destroying the world that God created. They, they want to make it, remake it in their own image. And both, quite frankly, are doing a pretty good job at it. Having said that, Christ is not referring to the peace that this world strives for. Now, it's, that's important. He's speaking of a peace which only God can achieve. His peace cannot be achieved. God's peace cannot be achieved by signing a peace treaty. It can't be achieved by destroying other nations. It can't even be achieved by forming humanistic, humanistic organizations. No, certainly we need to recognize 
that we are at war with our fellow humans most of the time, but our greatest need for peace is not with our fellow man. So we're at war with each other most of the time, if not really all the time, right? You know, that's that, that 8% with no wars, I can promise you there was some war going on. But we need to recognize that we are at war with our fellow humans most of the time, but our greatest need for peace is not with our fellow man, but with our Creator. We're at war with our Creator. James 4. James says in his own fashion, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. You might even say that God is at war with man. In Psalm 5, David cries out, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And I challenge you, there are not many men out there that aren't men of bloodshed and deceit. It's who we are, right? It's Romans 3. In truth, peace with God, a peace that only God can achieve, is our greatest need. Peace with God will lead to the, to the peace of God and peace with our fellow man. That's what we have to recognize. But peace with God can only be achieved by God's plan and by God's provision. The question is, what are the characteristics of worldly peace? Well, there's three characteristics of worldly peace. Worldly peace comes when one people subjugate another people by force. And as such, we are always replacing evil for evil. We, we may gain some level of stability in that, but we, we cannot eradicate evil. We, we can't do it because evil is, as we've already seen, evil is in the heart of man. So it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter. They, they may have the best plans for peace and that, they, that anybody's ever had, but because evil is in the heart of man, it's always going to result in a lack of peace. Worldly peace then also comes on the basis of the victor's worldview. You should recognize that the victor always writes the history books, right? The victors win the right to tell us how great they are. Truly, that's what makes the Bible so unique, right? It's the only book that we can read. It's the only thing that we can read that doesn't contain some ungodly or unwarranted bias. It brings glory to one, right? The Lord. Who's the only one who deserves it. We need to recognize also that, that worldly peace is always fleeting. We have to see that there's always another nation or another group readiest to establish their own form of peace. And worldly peace can only last as long as we have enough ammunition and young men to shoot the enemies. Isn't that ironic? Worldly peace only involves the absence of conflict and strife. And that's, this is the big issue. You see, men have the ability to stop shooting at each other. But that does not constitute true peace. That does not constitute true peace. True peace. So the question then becomes, if, if that's what worldly peace is, and, and that's our understanding of worldly peace, then what is the nature of true peace? Well, peace, on the, is, peace is on the basis of righteousness. Put simply, true peace can only come on the basis of God's righteousness, true righteousness. You see, for peace to reign among men, righteousness must reign. And righteousness can only reign where God reigns. And in the Hebrew language, shalom is the word for peace. It, had the, it has the idea of completeness. It speaks of the presence of welfare and tranquility and contentment. Therefore, peace cannot simply be the absence of war and conflict. Again, that's how the, the world would define it. It's, it's the absence of war, war and conflict, but it, it has to be something greater. It has to be the presence of something much greater. It has to be the presence of God's righteousness. Or said another way, kingdom righteousness. God's kingdom, kingdom righteousness. I've, I've called the, the Sermon on the Mount the king's kingdom manifesto. 
In other words, it's the king, King Jesus' description of what it means to be in the kingdom. You might say it's the king's description of his kingdom, which is built on his righteousness. It's amazing. Well, see, the Beatitudes serve as, as the introduction of this great sermon. This great sermon that tells us what it means to live according to his righteousness, or what it lives to, to means to live in a kingdom that is built according to his righteousness. So, but they also sum up what it means to actually be in the kingdom. They're literally a description of our salvation. We've already seen that. Now, you'll notice that in Matthew 5, 3, uh, G- Jesus starts the Beatitudes with the entry point into the kingdom, being poor in the Spirit. And you see, those who are poor in spirit, those who come to the end of themselves, uh, they will possess the kingdom of heaven. You may also notice in Matthew 5.10, we haven't gotten there yet, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, where Jesus says, blessed are those who, are, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, but that's his righteousness, the righteousness that brings peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted for that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, you see this connection between righteousness and peace and the kingdom. Funny enough, I wrote right here. Now you should make that connection. Uh, our world, in our world, righteousness, kingdom righteousness, will attract persecution. Now, earlier I talked about, right, why as Christians do we live in so much strife? Why does the truth bring so much strife? This is it. This is the, this is the reason. Kingdom righteousness attracts persecution. And you can define persecution as an attempt to force peace. Worldly peace, right? Peace according to somebody's definition. In this case, it is forcing those who hold the kingdom righteousness to conform this world to this world using whatever force is necessary. Those who are holding to kingdom righteousness are being forced by the world uh, through persecution. They're being forced to conform to this world using whatever force is necessary. That's persecution. Here's what we have to understand. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, brings God's righteousness, which brings true peace. But the current world system that's under control, the control of God's enemies hates God's righteousness. Therefore, they hate messengers of God's peace. Said another way, they hate peacemakers. What we have to recognize, again, is that God's kingdom brings peace. Now in the past, as we've gone through Matthew, I have argued that the kingdom of God is the great theme of the Bible. The kingdom starts in Genesis chapter 1 with God's creation. In Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are God's kingdom. He reigns over them. And we see that theme, his, the theme of His kingdom carried throughout Scripture. In, in Exodus 19.5 and 6, it says that God created Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This theme is carried into the New Testament with the Gospels. The king and his kingdom is, is the, the Gospel of Matthew's dominant theme. The, the Apostle John picks up on this theme in Revelation 5.10. Again, starting in Genesis through the entire Scripture and through the Gospels into the New Testament, now to Revelation 5.10, uh, the Lamb of God was slain and He was purchased for God with your, peop- with your blood. People from uh, he, he was slain and, and, he, and He purchased with... His blood, uh, people from every tribe, every tongue, and, and every people and every nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our gods, and they will reign upon the earth. So we see God's kingdom in Revelation 5 at the very end. I love the picture of, of, of Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The idea is, is that God's kingdom is invading the kingdom of the world, and that God's kingdom will replace and, and overcome the kingdom of the world. God's goodness will overcome evil. And He will reign forever and ever. In Revelation 21, 3 and 5, we find the description of what life will be like in Christ's kingdom when it's fully established on the earth. He will wipe away every tear. 
and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But he who sits on the throne, you know kings sit on thrones, right? He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these, things, these words are faithful and true. And in Revelation 21, 22-27, he gives the description of this heavenly city, Jerusalem. Uh, just listen. He says the, in, in 21, 24, uh, the kings of the earth will bring glory, their glory into it, and its gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there, and they will bring the glory and the honor of nations into it, and nothing defiled, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the, in the, the Lamb's book of life the Lamb's book of life. God will fully establish His kingdom. That's the point. And His kingdom, his kingdom then is at the beginning. It, it's the beginning in Genesis. It's at, at the end in Revelation. And, and you may notice then that, God's, or that, that peace accompanies God's kingdom. And righteousness and peace accompany God's kingdom. John MacArthur sums it up like this. The idea of peace, in fact, permeates the Bible. Again, because the kingdom permeates the Bible. The idea of peace permeates the Bible. It opens and closes with peace. When God originally created man and woman and put them in the garden, it was a garden of peace. Then, the, then came the fall and peace was interrupted. And, and peace with God was interrupted. Uh, peace between men was interrupted. Then at the cross, Jesus came and brought peace to the heart. Someday Jesus will return and establish a kingdom of peace. Again, we see this kingdom that God is going to establish a kingdom of peace. And in the ultimate new heaven and new earth, we'll enjoy eternal peace. Because we'll, we'll see God's kingdom uh, be established fully on earth and in heaven. So really, the story of redemption, I go on to say, or John MacArthur goes on to say, so really, the story of redemption is the story of peace. Peace forfeited Peace regained in the heart, peace regained on earth, and finally peace regained in the eternal state. So the question is, who are the peacemakers? Who are the peacemakers? Well, as we've seen, these Beatitudes sum up salvation and what it means to be a Christian, or what it means to become and exist as a kingdom citizen in a harsh world that's set against God. Well, we are... As Christians, we are those who have been imputed the very righteousness of God. Therefore, we live, we're called to live according to His righteousness. In Romans 10.10, 10, Paul writes, For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. In Romans 10.15, Paul proclaims, How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. You see, proclaiming good news of good things is literally proclaiming the gospel. In Ephesians 6.15, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. You could describe it as the gospel that brings peace. Primarily, primarily it brings peace with God. As I've said, the biggest issue is that we need peace with God. But it will ultimately usher in peace among men. In Luke 2.14, it says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. You may describe Christians then as those who are at peace with God. They have been reconciled with God. The Apostle Paul beautifully captures this in 2 Corinthians 5.18-21. You can turn there if you'd like. In 2 Corinthians 5.18-21, in 5.18, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what we need to recognize is, is that if we've been reconciled, then that means that we're at war with Christ. There's no peace or with, with, with God. There's no peace between us and God. We've already talked about that. And so God reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His Son. 
What that ultimately means is, is that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He has reconciled us through His shed blood on the cross. Which, by the way, just as a side note, was pretty violent, was it not? There wasn't a lot of peace that, in that sense, right? Then notice what Paul says. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I would argue that God has given every Christian, every person sitting here today who is a Christian, who truly believes, He has given you the ministry of reconciliation. He's given you the ministry of the gospel. But here's what I'm going to argue. In other words, when He makes you a Christian, He makes you a peacemaker. We are those, borrowing from Ephesians 6.15, we are those who preach the gospel of peace. Peace between God and man. The only way we can be reconciled to God is through the ministry of the gospel. Look at your text if you're there in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Ultimately, God is reconciling the world in that, uh, we saw it in Revelation 21, in that it will be fully redeemed for His glory. So He's reconciling the world to Himself. Now, on a side note, that does not mean that each individual in, that lives on this, in this world will participate in the kingdom of God. That does not mean that. It means that God is reconciling this world. And only those who have believed in the gospel, only those who have been saved by grace through faith, will, will not have their transgressions counted against them. Notice again. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, that is the gospel. That is the good news. Let me say it this way. That is the good news that you can have peace with God. We've been given the gospel of peace. Again, what I want you to recognize is, is that uh, those who have been given this ministry of reconciliation, which is every one of you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, that, that we have been made then peacemakers. Look back at your text in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ. One of the one of the um, functions of an ambassador is to maintain the peace. In this case, Paul says it is God is pleading through us. We are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. What is He pleading? It's, it's this reconciliation. And then He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Literally have peace with God. Through the gospel of peace. Now, for you guys that are hermeneutics and interpretation, you would be right to say that Paul is specifically talking about his team's ministry. But, I believe this truth can be applied to every Christian. We are ambassadors for Christ. Wherever the Lord has sent us, we are sent with this message of reconciliation that the King wants us to be reconciled to Him. We are messengers sent from the King with the gospel of peace, begging the world to be reconciled to God who is the rightful King. Look back at your text in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse is a succinct declaration of the gospel, uh, the gospel of peace. He, that there's peace because God has made uh, his son uh, to, to be sin. He, he poured out his wrath on, on his son so that we might become his righteousness, God, the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. No, because what Christ has done, we can have peace with God. It's a, really a succinct declaration of the gospel of the King. 
When we believe the truth of this verse, we have peace with God and we are made to be peacemakers. That is an amazing, amazing, amazing truth. Look back at your text in Matthew 5, 9. The greatest truth is that Christians are literally made to be sons of God in Christ. According to Ephesians 1, 5, we have been predestined to adoption, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 17, Paul calls us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I love John's, the Apostle John's exhortation in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. He says this, See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That's a little bit of a secret here that I'm going to show you. It's not a secret, but but I asked earlier, you know, about the the truth and how the truth brings strife, right? Being a peacemaker isn't necessarily being one that avoids strife. Does that make sense? Preaching the truth is going to bring strife. Well, we're called both children and sons of God. Children or child speaks of of God's tender affection and and His endearment to us. It speaks of our our intimate uh, intimate relationship with Him. And and the world does not know us because it does not know Him. And when we preach Him, and we preach the truth, and we preach that from this intimate relationship with Him, it's going to bring difficulty. It's going to bring strife. But that is the, the nature of righteousness in this world that we live in. You see, we've been made heirs with Christ. In other words, we have been made His firstborn sons. We are all male or female, male and female, we are all joint heirs of the faith. God has made us all children, and He's made us all peacemakers, but that doesn't mean that we'll live in peace. You may recall that we still live in this world. You may notice that the tense here, if you're you're looking at it, the tense is future, but I want you to know it's also passive. You shall be made. We have not seen the fruition of our sonship. Uh, That's exactly what John says earlier. Uh, If I back up here, that's what John says earlier, uh, that that we have not been... uh, we have not, it has not been manifested as yet as what we will be. Uh, that when He is manifested, we will be like Him. In other words, we haven't seen the full fruition of our sonship. Of who we will be in Christ. And in the meantime, though, we have to recognize that the world hates God's righteousness. And since we've been made righteous by God, therefore the world hates us. In John 15, 18 through 19, he, he says, he says to his, his disciples, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. That's why it brings strife. The truth brings strife because the world hates the truth. Therefore, the world hates us. Therefore, the world, what we have to recognize, the world is not interested in God's peace. The world is not interested in God's peacemakers except to persecute them. We're going to find out more about that next time. But in the meantime, if you are here and you know Him, I want you to recognize that God has made you to be an ambassador for Him. You have been literally made to be a peacemaker. I pray and ask and and exhort you to take every opportunity to live and proclaim the gospel of peace to those who remain God's enemies. 
we all have multitude of opportunities. Some of you go and you preach on the, uh, in, on the street. Go and do more. Some of you have family. That are, most of us have, if not all of us, have family that's unbelievers. Go and preach the gospel. You see the lack of peace in their homes. Go and preach the gospel. Be a peacemaker. It's only the gospel. It's only the gospel of peace that brings true peace. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know world peace is not the big issue. You need to have peace with your Maker. He's given away. I want you to know that He sent, the Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for the sins of mankind, to die for your sins if you would only believe. He went to the cross to endure His Father's wrath. Literally, the Father made Jesus the perfect Lamb of God. Uh, who had no sin to be sin. We saw that earlier in Second Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to endure His wrath for sin so that you would not have to. So that you could have true peace with your Maker. Here's the truth. Christ died for your sins if you would only believe that He died on the cross and He was buried, and He's raised to eternal life. And that He has ascended to His Father in triumph. And that you can have peace with Him if you would only turn to Him today. You see, I'm standing here before you today as an ambassador for Christ. And it is God who is pleading through me begging you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I stand here today, if you don't know Him, if you don't know Him, I beg you, I beg you to turn to Him. I beg you to be reconciled to Him. Don't let another moment pass. You could breathe your last breath at any moment. If you're not reconciled to Him, He will pour out wrath on you for the rest of eternity. You will have no peace. Can you imagine an eternity with no peace whatsoever? In in agony. Can you imagine an eternity with no peace? Whatever you think that would look like. Whatever you imagine that to be. I can assure you it's much worse than you could ever imagine. I beg you, if you don't know Him today, cry out to Him. He will save you. He will bring true peace into your heart. Oh, Heavenly Lord, we praise Your holy name. Lord, I pray that my preaching fruitful, not for my glory, but for You. Pray, Lord, for the Gospel. Pray that You would make us and use us as peacemakers. Lord, not this worldly peace that is just the absence of conflict. is some idea of tranquility that's worldly. I'm talking true peace. Peace between you and us. Peace in the heart, but ultimately peace where God's right, your righteousness, O oh Lord, reigns throughout heaven and earth. A peace that you can only achieve. In Christ's name, amen.